You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Driven is the modern catchphrase for seeker-sensitive. And it was eight proven steps to take your church from traditional to purpose-driven. Now, it's a very subtle insult, isn't it? That if you're a traditional church, that you don't have a purpose. Or that you don't know what your purpose is. Or that you're not living according to your purpose. That's the implication. And I guess by traditional churches, they mean churches that teach the Scriptures, have a high value or high premium placed on expository teaching, uh, traditional hymns, traditional even modern choruses, um, without a full-scale band and jumbotron and all of that. I guess that's what they mean by traditional churches, that we are one of those. And from what I understand, people don't like those anymore. People don't like traditional churches. And so the card went right in the mail. Uh, sorry, the garbage. I wouldn't have mailed that out to anybody. It went right in the garbage. That's a fad. Churches get caught up in fads. It is a distinctly American fad. It is a distinctly 21st century fad. You see, even though the tendency has been there for all of church history to compromise on these things, Jonathan Edwards preached against it and fought against it. Charles Spurgeon stood against it, and it has been that way for centuries. It has only been in the last 25 years that it has been embraced as a legitimate means of church growth and ministry. It's distinctly 21st century, and it's distinctly American. It has not been embraced or promoted or practiced for 2,000 years of church history. It's a fad. Now, I spent my entire childhood trying to keep up with fads because I went to a public school. So at the beginning of my third grade year, breakdancing came in. And it was quite a fad. You remember breakdancing? looked like something was broken. That's how it got its name, breakdancing. And so I was wanting to, I remember sitting and having lunch in this very gymnasium when it was a cafeteria. And after we had lunch, one of the kids would get up and he would do a breakdance. And the whole school would watch him. And these guys had moved up from somewhere down south and they had brought their breakdancing with them. And that was the rave for the whole third year. So the summer after my third year, uh, third grade, I asked my mom to buy me a book on how to breakdance. I was going to get into breakdancing. So she bought me a how-to book. And about the time I figured out one move of breakdancing, it had gone from being the cool and in thing to being the most hideous thing that only losers did. But I could breakdance by then. <laughs> the end of my third grade, preppy was in. All the cool kids wore slacks and button-up shirts and even a tie, sometimes a cardigan. Preppy was the style. So when it came time to buy school clothes for my fourth grade year, I told my mom I want all of these. I showed her in the Sears and JCPenney catalog. This is what I want for school clothes. So I showed up the first day of school for fourth grade alone in my preppy clothes. Little did I know that over the summer, the style, the fad, the fashion had changed from preppy to Levi's 501s. Now my mom was not in the habit of going out and buying me a new wardrobe every time I got the itch. I had to wear my clothes out before I got new clothes, and even then it was no guarantee that I would get new clothes. So I went out and played baseball and football and all of my preppy clothes in order to wear those things out. And I finally got a pair of Levi's 501s for the school year, just about the time that Levi's were going out and parachute pants were coming in. Do you remember the nylon pants with all the zippers in the pockets? 
And Levi's are not known for their willingness to wear out quickly. But I tried. I finally got some parachute pants handed down from my cousins. They were handed down for a reason. And now with my drawer full of parachute pants, my mom reasoned, there's no need to buy you any new pants. You've got all of these parachute pants. So I was wearing parachute pants while all the other kids were back in the Levi's which were back in style. I was the homeboy who was always one click out of step with what was cool. I was the one who was jumping in with both feet while everybody else was running frantically from the last fashion. So I hate fads. And the church has its fads. And I'm convinced that by the time that I am 70 or 80 years old, this fad that the church is going through of compromise and watering things down and changing our philosophy of ministry is going to have passed from the scene and everybody who jumped on it is going to regret that they did. And everybody who is a quote-unquote traditional church, as if that's a bad thing, is going to have come through and be just content and fine with the fact that they didn't jump on the latest fad. I think that there is an antidote for fads, by the way. And I think it's the book of Acts. I've been consistently giving you the antidote for these fads over the course of the last year. As you and I open up the book of Acts, we see that right after the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people got saved. And then Luke gives us this little vignette, this little historical snippet, sort of a play of what the life in the early church was like. And he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You want to know what life was like in the early church? They were committed to those four things. The teaching and the doctrine of the apostles, to fellowship with one another, to the breaking of bread, that is communion, eating their meals together at the love feast, and to prayer. Those are the four things that characterized the early church. Those were the things that were the passion of the apostles. The passion of the Christians in the early church was to sit under the teaching of the apostles and to learn from them. And the passion of the apostles was to teach the believers. And then when we get to Acts chapter 11, we see that the church all of a sudden is opened up to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have come to faith. The apostles have accepted them. And now they understand that Gentiles are brought into the church in the same way and to the same degree as Jews are. And then in Acts chapter 11, we get this little vignette of what life was like in the early church when there were Jews and Gentiles together meeting. And you know what we find out? It looked just like the church in Jerusalem. I find it interesting that the apostles did not change their whole philosophy of ministry to accommodate a Gentile mindset. They did not change their whole approach to church to accommodate the, these new Gentiles who had a Greek way of thinking and a Greek way of doing thing, things and a very Roman and pagan outlook. They didn't accommodate any of that. Instead, what we find as we open up Acts chapter 11 is that the ministry of the apostles and the disciples in Antioch was just like it was in Jerusalem. The same things that characterized the Jerusalem church characterized the church in Antioch. Now up until now, really through the end of Acts chapter 12, the focus and the, the focus and the purpose of the book of Acts is to show us how all of this growth in the book of Acts was related to the Jerusalem church and the Jerusalem elders. In Acts chapter 13, all of that is going to change because the church in Antioch is going to begin to eclipse the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem has been considered the mother church. That's where the apostles are. That's where it was started. That's where the doctrine has come from. And up until now, that is where all of the evangelism has taken place and all of the growth has flown out of the Jerusalem church and those twelve apostles. Not anymore. From Acts chapter 13 onward, 
the focus of the book and the focus of world evangelism is not going to come from Jerusalem. It's going to come from a church in Antioch. Antioch is going to become the hub and the center and the, 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 the middle of all of world evangelism, world Christianity. It's going to become the nerve center for Christianity really for the next 400 years. How did that happen? And how did that church start? That's what Luke's going to tell us. As we look at this church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19 through verse 26, I want you to notice three characteristics, three things that the church in Antioch was characterized by. The first thing was its diverse ethnicity. Its diverse ethnicity. Look at verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So Luke brings us back to the end of Acts chapter 8. Do you remember the persecution that started in connection with Saul? Well, that persecution not only sent Philip north to the Samaritans to evangelize them, but there were men who left Jerusalem fleeing that persecution who went even farther north than Samaria all the way up to the city of Antioch, which was almost as far north as Tarsus, up into Asia Minor and Turkey area. All the way up to Antioch, these men went, and they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, some of them were only preaching to the Jews. Do you notice how Luke says that? Why were there some Christians who fled Jerusalem and they only took the gospel to the Jews? Why did they do that? Well, by this point, they still didn't understand that the gospel's for the Gentiles also. This is before Cornelius. This is before Peter has his vision, before they understand that the gospel is a worldwide thing, not a particularly and distinctly Jewish thing. So not having that understanding, they go and they think the gospel's just for the Jews. But Luke tells us there were some men who were like Philip, They were much more open-minded, much more willing to share Christ with those outside of their own ethnic circle. Those men from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they fled Jerusalem, they went up to Antioch and they started preaching the gospel to the Jews. So what you have in Antioch is the first church in record where you had Jews and Gentiles meeting together. Jews and Gentiles worshiping the same Savior. You had one church in Antioch, and because of the type of people who went there, some had a ministry to Jews, some preached Jesus to the Gentiles, and together in Antioch you had one church. And this becomes a really multi-ethnic, multinational, international church of believers. Not only due to the fact that some people preached Jesus to the Jews and some preached Him to the Gentiles, and so you had both groups coming to be saved, but listen, there's some things that are distinctly unique about Antioch that really enabled it to become a hub for world evangelism. The city of Antioch was founded by one of Alexander the Great's generals who named the city after his father. He had already named Seleucius, the city of Seleucius, after himself. And so after you've named a city after yourself, then you found another city, you name it after somebody else. He named it after his father, Antiochus. So Antioch, by the time of the book of Acts, came to be a political powerhouse It was a commercial center because trade routes went through there and everybody that did commerce did commerce to and from out of Antioch. They were, um, they had the nickname Antioch the Beautiful because Antioch had a street that ran north and south in the city and this street was a wide street and it was paved, it was a long street and it was paved with polished stones. A beautiful spectacle. 
And along both sides were these magnificent columns. And the columns were sort of decorated and interspersed with fountains and trees. And so Antioch is a center of wealth and commerce and beauty. Got its nickname Antioch the Beautiful. Antioch became the third city of the Roman Empire, second only to Rome to its west and Alexandria to its east. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire with a population of 500,000 people at the time that Luke is writing this. 500,000 people in the city of Antioch. But it was not really primarily known for its political power or its commerce or really its ethnic diversity. You see, in Antioch, they had um, Persians were there, Orientals were there. They had a large Jewish segment. In fact, there were so many people from Eastern nations that Antioch earned a second nickname, the Queen of the East. So they were a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, international city. So much so that they were the international city of the Roman Empire. They had Easterns, they had Westerns, they had Jews, they had Gentiles, everybody. They had, Antioch had its own little Chinatown. And every considerable ethnic group was in Antioch and was based in Antioch. But it wasn't known really necessarily for all of those things. There's one thing that stood out about Antioch, and that was its moral laxity. You see, about five miles outside of the city of Antioch was a little town called Daphne. And in the city of Daphne was a temple to Apollos. And in the temple they practiced ritual and religious prostitution all of the time. The city was a debauched, immoral. It was the home of every kind of immorality and depravity that you could possibly imagine. That was Antioch and Daphne. In fact, it had its own little proverb named after it, Daphnisi mores. A Daphnean culture was a proverb for a debauched culture. We live in a Daphnean culture, so to speak, to use the proverb of their day. It was so immoral, it characterized anybody else. If you wanted to insult a city, you would just call it Daphnean in its morality. That's how depraved Antioch and Daphne were. Such is the city in which the gospel was planted, and friends, such was the city in which the gospel prospered. Because I want you to notice the second characteristic about this church in Antioch. Not only its diverse ethnicity, but second, in verse 21, its divine blessings. Look what Luke says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was on this church. There is nothing you and I should rather want than the hand of the Lord. Everything else should pale in comparison to the blessing of God on our life and on our ministry. And this is Luke's way of saying, everything this church did was blessed. The sun came up and the sun went down on this church. And God was in this church. He was leading. He was directing in the church at Antioch. It received His blessing. It was the place where He was glorified and God was doing a work in their midst. The hand of God was on them. What's the evidence that the hand of God was on them? A large number of those who believed turned to the Lord. In this particular church, at that time, that was the evidence of the blessing of God. They had people who were getting saved. And I want you to notice how Luke phrases that. A large number who believed turned to the Lord. Notice the connection between belief and repentance. They believed and they turned. You see, an individual cannot believe without repenting. Because one of the things you repent from is unbelief. So unless you turn from your sin, namely your sin of unbelief, and all of the sin in your life, you really cannot believe. An individual who thinks he's saved, who has never abandoned his sin, has every reason to question whether or not he's truly saved. Because repentance and belief go together. That's why Luke puts them together the way he does. All those who believed turned from their sin to the Lord. And all of these people in considerable numbers were turning to the Lord. Look how Luke talks about evangelism. I think it's interesting when I read the New Testament, and particularly the book of Acts, 
since Luke was the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, who planted all of these churches, I find it interesting to see how Luke talks about evangelism. Look at verse 21. A large number who believed turned to the Lord. Look at verse 24. Speaking of Barnabas, he says he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. That word brought there is the is the Greek word from which we get our English word prosthetics. In addition, many considerable numbers were added to the Lord. Now in Acts chapter 2, Luke says that the Lord added to their number daily. He added to what? The church. And who did the adding? It was the Lord who did the adding, right? Well here, Luke says, considerable numbers were added to what? The church? To the Lord. So it is the Lord who does the adding, and it is the Lord that is added to. Evangelism is the work of God whereby He brings to Himself sinners. Where the Lord does the adding and He adds to the Lord. Because to be brought to the church, to be brought into the church, to be brought into fellowship with Christ, is to be brought into fellowship with the Lord. The Lord adds to the Lord. That's evangelism. It's not your your job and my job to try and woo people into the kingdom, to convince them to believe in Christ. It's your job and my job to preach the gospel and to let the Lord add to His number those whom He chooses. That's biblical evangelism. This church was doing that. They saw the evidence. They said, if people are turning from their sin, that's the work of God, because God has now granted to these people repentance that leads to life. So if God is turning people from their sin, that's His work, He must be involved in it. And if He is adding people to the numbers and giving them faith to believe, that's the work of God. That's the evidence of the hand of God. So they looked out and they said, we understand that regeneration and salvation is the work of God. We see people coming to Christ around us. The hand of God is there. That's divine blessing. Not only diverse ethnicity and divine blessing, but the third thing I want you to notice that characterized this church, and I think that this is one of the most important, in fact, I think this really belongs before divine blessing, is diligent teaching. Diligent teaching. Look at verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he arrived and he witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. The Jerusalem church heard of this. News spread about what was going on in Antioch. So much evangelism, a church being established there with Jew and Gentile, that they sent off a delegate, and his name was Barnabas. And why did they send off Barnabas? Did they not believe people were coming to faith in Antioch? I don't think that was it. You know why they sent Barnabas? I think that by this time, the rest of the apostles are so busy with what's going on in Jerusalem that they commissioned a delegate to go there and really to teach and to oversee the work in Antioch. And Barnabas is the perfect choice of the individual to go to this Jewish Gentile church and begin to oversee the ministry of that church as an apostolic delegate. Barnabas has been with the apostles. He is familiar with the apostles' teaching. He is familiar with their philosophy of ministry. And the apostles look for a man that they can trust, and they know it's Barnabas. You remember, Barnabas isn't his real name. This is the same Barnabas back in Acts chapter 5. His name is Joseph. But the apostles called him Barnabas. Why? His name means son of encouragement. Barnabas is that guy that William Barclay says has the biggest heart in all of the New Testament. That's Barnabas. He's the son of encouragement. There's one thing that stood out about the Joseph, this man of Levite birth from Cypria. He was an encourager. He was the type of person that you walk into his presence and he just brought you up. He lifted you up all the time, encouraging you. And so the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas. He was the one who had a tract of land. He sold it and he brought the money to the apostles' feet. 
feet and he said, distribute this amongst the poor. This was the same Barnabas who after Saul was converted and Saul went up to Jerusalem and he couldn't get in with the Christians and the apostles would have nothing to do with him because they feared that this was all just one of his ploys to get inside the church and destroy from inside what he couldn't take from outside. But it was Barnabas who took a a chance on Saul and grabbed him and took him to the apostles and introduced him to Peter and James. That was Barnabas. It was an encouraging. When Paul needed a friend, Barnabas was there. So the apostles can see this ability for Barnabas to encourage him. He's a trustworthy man. And they send him off to Antioch. He was perfect for the job because if the apostles had sent a strict legalist up to Antioch, you know what would have happened? It would have spelled disaster. If they had sent somebody up there who thought you had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised and keep all the dietary requirements that were part of the Jewish law, if they had sent somebody like that to oversee that work, it would have died in its crib. But he didn't. They sent Barnabas. And he was of Cyprian birth, so the people in Antioch wouldn't have viewed him as some Jerusalem Jew who was an outsider. They would have viewed him as one of their own. He was a real Hellenist, a real open-minded Jew. And he could go as the apostle's emissary and oversee that work. You know what it is that caused the blessing of God to be upon Barnabas? Look at verse 24. He was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Good. Out of the 100 people mentioned by name in the book of Acts, Barnabas is the only one that Luke uses this adjective of He was good. That means he was excellent. He was a man of excellent character. He was noble. He was helpful. He was trustworthy. He was a person of of, of sterling qualities and of spotless character. He was a good man. There's one thing you noticed about Barnabas when you met him. It was the fact that unlike anybody else, this guy was just, there was a good quality about him. He was an excellent individual in every way. And then Luke uses a phrase to describe him that he's only used of Stephen so far, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Like Stephen, Barnabas was a man on par with his spiritual giftedness and his capacity to be yielded to the Spirit of God and used by the Spirit of God. Of all the men that they could send in Jerusalem, they single out Barnabas. And they see something in Barnabas that they know we can trust him, we can send him up there, and we don't have to worry about that work. And so they send him off to Antioch. And Barnabas shows up there, and what does he see? It's The text says that he witnesses the grace of God. What did he witness? you know what he witnessed? All of those people getting saved. That's grace. And not only that, but he also witnessed Jews and Gentiles in one church worshiping the same God. That's grace. Barnabas could see the grace of God in display in this church and that there's one thing that characterized the ministry of this church even before Barnabas showed up. It was the grace of God on display like you can't imagine. Circumcised, and uncircumcised, who until now would have nothing to do with each other, worshiping together in the same church. And you can imagine Orientals and Persians and Indians and and Greeks and Jews all together in this one multi-ethnic, multi-racial, mixed congregation, children before God. And that was the grace of God on display. And so Barnabas sees this and it says that he starts to encourage them. See, that's what Barnabas did. That's why he was called Barnabas. He encouraged them with a resolute heart to remain faithful to the Lord. Basically, Barnabas says to them, I want you to persevere in the faith that you've started. Keep going in the faith. Don't abandon it. Don't give up on it. Times are going to get tough. Things are going to get tight. But you continue in the grace of God. In the words of Paul, who would later write, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's what Barnabas was encouraging them to do. 
In Acts chapter 13, it says that Barnabas and Paul urged the new believers to continue in the grace of God. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That was what they did. They evangelized the lost and they established a church. And then before they left, they would say, whatever comes, whatever happens, continue in the grace of God. Allow Him to complete that work in you which He has begun. And persevere in this faith. Really demonstrate the reality of your faith by continuing in it. And so he encouraged them to do that. And what happened? The Lord continued to add considerable numbers being brought to the Lord. Look at the end of verse 24. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now up until the end of chapter 2, chapter 3, somewhere in there, Luke gave us a lot of numbers. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 got saved. Acts chapter 3, the church in Jerusalem consisted of 5,000 men. But after that, he stopped giving out numbers. Now, I think the reason he doesn't give out numbers here is not because he doesn't have the information, because he was a traveling companion of Paul. And so he knows how many people were in Antioch at the time and probably how large the church was. But the only way Luke can describe it is this. It was considerable numbers in a, in a city of 500,000 people. People are continually being brought to the Lord. This church is growing to the point, folks, where it is mammoth. And Barnabas is doing all of the teaching and all of the discipling and all of the shepherding. And he has the oversight of this entire church in Antioch. Now eventually that would get to be too much for one man, even two men. You're going to need help, aren't you? So what does Barnabas do? Verse 25, look at it. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. He thinks to himself, Saul, that's the apostle to the Gentiles. I wonder if he would be interested in having a part in the ministry over all of these Gentiles, a large Gentile congregation, really an international diversity of, of Gentiles, and perhaps even a, a center for world evangelism with people like this and this giftedness. So he thinks of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now, the last time Barnabas saw Paul was about eight years prior to this. The last time was when Paul went up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, and they wouldn't receive him. And then after Paul was there for about two weeks, do you remember they tried to kill him? The people in the synagogue wanted to do to him what they had done to Stephen. And so the disciples took Paul and they ushered him out of the city and sent him off to Tarsus. And that's where Paul was and that's where we left him in chapter 9. And now here we are in chapter 11, eight years later, about 44 A.D., and Barnabas remembers Saul. And he knows that the last time he heard from Saul, he sent him off to Tarsus. So he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul with the intention of bringing him back to Antioch to help out in this ministry. Now Luke uses a word when it says he went to, for Tarsus to look for Saul. He uses a word there. This, we translate look. He uses a word that means to search for something with great difficulty. And when it is used of persons, it particularly has that meaning. It wasn't easy to find him. Barnabas had to search, I think, through Tarsus for many days before he finally came across Paul. Why is that? It's difficult to catch up with a busy person, isn't it? I mean, you land somewhere. Hey, have you seen Paul? Yeah, he was here two days ago, but then he left and he went to such and such a place. And so you go there. Have you seen Paul? He was just here yesterday, but he left and he went to such and such a place. And on you go all the way through the city until you can finally catch up with this guy. That's what I think was happening. What was Paul doing for eight years in Tarsus? A few years back, there was a movie made called Peter and Paul. And it starred Anthony Hopkins as the Apostle Paul. I know it's difficult to envision the same guy playing Hannibal Lecter that playing the Apostle Paul. But put that aside for a second. It really 
it really followed well the narrative of the book of Acts. And I sat there with the book of Acts and I sort of flipped through the pages. This was a couple years ago as I was watching the movie and, and I would sort of recognize the events and it followed it really closely from, I think the movie starts out with Peter and the stoning of Stephen. I don't think it really addresses the, the uh, day of Pentecost so much, but it's, it primarily focuses in on the ministries of Peter and then the ministry of Paul. And when they, they did it well, it was well done, especially considering that it was a Christian pub production. Usually Christians are not noted for their ability to produce good entertainment, unless it's animated vegetables that talk. Then the quality seems to be pretty good, but other than that, we're really not noted for that. It was well done. But when they got to this point in the movie, where Barnabas finds Paul, you know how they portrayed it? I think they really went off base here. Barnabas searches for Paul, searches for Paul, searches for Paul. Finally, he finds Paul. And Paul is living in secret, basically in anonymity, and he's making tents. And he's bitter, frustrated, resentful man. Because he's been converted and the Christians will have nothing to do with him. He went to Jerusalem. The Christians there didn't want to have anything to do with him. The apostles didn't give him a very good greeting. And they ship him off to Tarsus. And then for eight years, the apostles never contact him, never bring him back to Jerusalem to help out in the ministry. And so he spends eight years in Tarsus licking his wounds and making tents. Come on. I don't think so. You know what I think Paul was doing? If I were to put together the pieces from his other epistles, this is what I think happened during those eight years, and this is just as educated a speculation as you're going to get because it's all speculation at this point. I think it was during this time that the Apostle Paul suffered many of the things that are recorded in 2 Corinthians 11 but aren't recorded in the book of Acts, like the five lashings that he received from the Jews of 39 lashings each. Luke doesn't mention those in the rest of the book of Acts, or at least not all of them. Here's probably where he experienced some of that. I think Paul went back to his hometown, back to his home synagogue, and as a believer, he started to preach Christ and proclaim Christ and teach and plant churches and disciple. And I think that the synagogue in Tarsus treated him like the synagogue in Jerusalem treated Stephen. They rejected him entirely. I think it was during this time that Paul was disinherited entirely from his family. And I think that that's a lot of what he means when he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. I have nothing. He went back to Tarsus where his family was. And listen, there's no record that Saul ever led his mother or his father or any of his siblings to the Lord. All we know is that he had a sister who lived in Jerusalem whose son would later save his life. But that's all we know of his family. Other than the fact that he came from a wealthy family and probably prior to his conversion was a wealthy individual. You don't get an education from Gamaliel if you're just some Joe Blow off the street. You've got to have some coin to produce an education like Paul had. But by the time he gets back to Tarsus, he has suffered the loss of all things. His family wants nothing to do with him. His old friends want nothing to do with him. He suffered at the hands of his synagogue. He's received those lashings. He has nothing. So much so that at the end of his life, when he's finally sitting in prison, awaiting his execution, Paul would literally say, everyone has abandoned me, only Luke is with me. I've only got Luke. He has suffered the loss of all things. Now, whatever was happening with Paul during those eight years, when Barnabas shows up, he obviously deems it something worthy of going to Antioch to help out in that ministry. I think Paul felt confident enough with the condition of the church in Tarsus and his work there for eight years that he could leave there and go to Antioch to help Barnabas in that work. He deems it a prudent thing because he leaves and he goes back and look what Luke says. And when he had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch and for an entire year they met with the church and they taught considerable numbers. 
for a year they met in the church and they taught considerable numbers. Now, if you're looking for somebody to teach the Scriptures in your church, who would you want? Paul. This man had an intellect that was unrivaled in his time. He had an education that every Jew could only dream of having at the feet of Gamaliel. He had a background and an understanding in the Old Testament that every Jew could only hope to have. His intellect was unrivaled. His training was second to none. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. The man was a brilliant mind. He understood the Old Testament like nobody else. And to top it all off, he was a gifted teacher and he was a believer. So he understood the Old Testament Scriptures. He understood the fulfillment of all of that in Christ. And he was an apostle. So you want one of the most gifted and the best qualified and the the best teacher bar none? Paul. So Barnabas goes and he gets Paul. And he brings him back to Antioch. And what characterizes his ministry? For an entire year, they met in the church of Antioch and they taught considerable numbers. Paul and Barnabas began to pastor the church in Antioch and to oversee that. And their ministry was entirely characterized by what? The apostles' teaching. What did the church in Antioch devote themselves to? The apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. That was the things that characterized the church in Antioch. And once they got Saul back in Antioch, he started a teaching ministry. Now here's what I find interesting, and listen to this. The church in Antioch was started by a bunch of people who fled Jerusalem from a persecution. Those people started that church, and within ten years, the man whom they fled would be their pastor at that church. Now isn't that the mother of all ironies? It's entirely possible that there were people in Antioch who had been there since they left Jerusalem. They ran from Paul in Jerusalem. They started the church in Antioch. And who's called to be their number one pastor? Paul. Doesn't God have a way of turning great things out of bad things? The irony of that just, it almost stills my mouth to have to say that. It's amazing. Here they'd run from him. Now he's their pastor. That's the grace of God, my friends, on display. So Paul is there and he is teaching considerable numbers because Paul and Barnabas understood this. The first and the last line of defense against false teaching is the Word of God. The first and the last need of every believer is to be taught the Word of God. And so Paul begins his recorded ministry here. And what is he doing? He's teaching. And that would be his pattern. That would be his passion. That would be his consuming drive for the rest of his life would be to teach. So much so that even toward the end of his life, as he's getting ready to leave, and he knows that the time of his departure has come, he writes to his young friend Timothy, who likely would take over a lot of his ministry, and he says to Timothy, Timothy, appoint elders who are able to teach. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, prescribe and teach these things. Give attention to yourself and to your teaching. And until I come, pay attention to exhortation and to teaching. Second. Timothy chapter 4, preach the Word. Of all of his consuming desires, preaching and teaching was at the top of it. That is what the apostles did. So much so that in Acts chapter 6, they said every other ministry of the church, we'll oversee it, but we can't be involved in it. This one thing we do, we have to teach the Word. And so that was their consuming drive. Friends, I'm convinced that if God has given you the gift of teaching and He's called you to teach, that it should be the consuming passion of your life second to nothing in your life as far as your ministry and service to the Lord goes. And if He hasn't given you the gift of teaching and He's given you some other capacity to serve, the consuming passion of your life should be to be taught. Because it's that important. For one year they met in the church at Antioch and they taught. And was His teaching effective? 
Oh, you bet it was. So much effective that by Acts chapter 13, as Luke lists the leaders in the church, you got Luke, Lucius and Cyrene and um, Nicanor and all of these men listed at the beginning of Acts chapter 13 who were teachers and prophets in the church. These were men who were mentored and ministered alongside of the Apostle Paul. And Antioch for 400 years would produce men like Theophilus and Theodoret and Theodore and Chrysostom and Ignatius and these church fathers. Gifted men, brilliant men. For 400 years, that was the heritage of the church at Antioch. Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD and there was a leadership vacuum and Antioch stepped up to the plate and became the leadership of the entire church for the whole area. How does a church become that powerful? How does a church become that effective? How do you produce men like that? You know what it is? For an entire year they met in Antioch and they taught considerable numbers. Because Paul understood. It's my number one goal. Barnabas didn't bring him there to entertain those people. He brought him there to help out in the teaching. And that last phrase is an important one. Look at verse 26. It says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's just not a gloss. That's not just a historical comment. That's something significant. This is the first place where Christians were called Christians. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? Because Paul and Barnabas met for a whole year there and taught these people. You see, their teaching didn't just produce believers. didn't just produce nominal Christians. It produced the type of church and the type of Christian body that they earned a nickname that would stick with them for 2,000 years. Christians. It's Christ with a suffix on the end of it, and the suffix means of the party of or belonging to the party of. Like people who followed and promoted and supported Herod were called Herodians. People who followed and obeyed and supported and were loyal to Christ were called Christians. And they did the same thing for Caesar, of the party of Christ. These weren't just different Jews. It wasn't a sect of the Jews. They earned their own nickname. They were so powerful, so prolific, so noted for their obedience to Christ that they gave them their own nickname, Christians. That's where they were first called Christians was in Antioch. The name started out, I think, pretty benign. But by the time Nero gets ready to persecute the church, it had become a slur. You see that in the other two places where the word is used, Acts 26, 28, where Agrippa says to Paul, Paul, thou almost persuadest me to become a Christian. If it weren't for the fact that you're called Christians, I probably would have become one. That's kind of what Agrippa is saying. You almost persuadest me to become even a Christian. There's a little hint of of pejorative in the word, the way Agrippa uses it. First Peter chapter 4, Peter says, don't be ashamed if you suffer as a Christian, but glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed of being called that, because they were using it as a slur. And they started to, they started to take their Christianity serious enough that they wrote, started to wear that title as a badge of honor. I am a Christian. Now friends, let me ask you this question. Is that an adjective that would be used to describe you? Do you wear that term lightly? You think that that adjective belongs to you because you come to church here, because you come to church every Sunday or once in a while, or because you have a fish on your car? Or to put it this way, if the people around you who are closest to you, your family, your friends, your relatives, when they observe your lifestyle, your behavior, your conduct, your words, your mannerisms and all of that, and they were given one adjective to describe you, which they use that adjective, Christian. The people you work with, your employees, employer, your co-workers, if they were given one adjective to describe your conduct at work, would they use that adjective? He's a Christian. Would they say he or she is so devoted, a follower of Christ, 
that if I were to use one word to describe them, it would be a word that means belonging to Christ entirely. It was in Antioch that they first had that word. What made this church so powerful? It was the diligent teaching of the apostles. So much so that they earned their own nickname. And that, my friends, it's that teaching, it's that obedience to Christ that made this church unique and made them a hub of world evangelism. And then next week we'll look at another evidence of their faith and how all of that played out as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it has the power to save the lost and to sanctify the sinner. We thank You that when it is preached and when it is taught and when it is read, that it has the power to change us and to sanctify us because it is truth and it is Your Word. And we know that we cannot honor too much Your Word or place too much of a priority upon its teaching, its obedience, and its reading. And I pray, Father, that You would transform us by Your Word in each and every way that is possible by Your Spirit and continue to form us to the image of Christ by that Holy Word. We love You, and we love You because You have revealed in Your Word that You first loved us and gave Your Son for us. And we thank You for all of that in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.